0: Our heads together, and we'll begin in prayer with a few moments of silent prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come before you today because we have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ who died on the cross as our substitute. And through faith alone in Christ alone, you and your grace have decided to impute to us his perfect righteousness which is the ground and position of our standing before you and the basis for all blessing in our lives. It is not a result of any works of righteousness on our behalf. It is not because of anything that we do or think that you bless us. But all that we have is a result of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is the basis for our justification and the ground for our sanctification. Now, Fathers, we study your word to learn what you have provided for us for our sanctification, for our spiritual life, that we may experience the full happiness and joy, the stability that you've provided for us. We pray that you would help us to understand these divine assets and make them real in our lives through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. We're now in the fifth chapter of Galatians and of Throughout the Scripture, although all Scripture is breathed out by God and therefore all Scripture is equally inspired by God, not all Scripture is equally applicable to the believer at every time and not all Scripture has the same import, the same significance, the same um, relevance for our lives. Some passages of Scripture are much more significant than others. John chapter 3 is the central passage for understanding regeneration. We think of Romans chapter 4 for understanding justification. Romans chapter 6 through 8 in terms of the spiritual life. And uh, Galatians chapter 5 stacks up with those other chapters as one of the most significant chapters for us to pay attention to in the scriptures, for it is here that Paul outlines for us the basic dynamics of the spiritual life. For that reason, I want to work our way through this chapter what will seem somewhat slowly because there's crucial issues here that are overlooked by many people and rarely understood in terms of putting together the spiritual life and the dynamics of the spiritual life. And as is Paul's standard operating procedure, in his epistles he usually spends the first Three or four chapters in an epistle of this size, outlining the basic doctrines, the basic theology, the basic realities of our position in Christ and what Christ has done for us. And then he makes a shift, and he starts dealing with the how this really, truly impacts our thinking and our life in terms of application. That shift takes place in Galatians at the beginning of Galatians chapter five. Galatians 5:1 is a what students of the word call a hinge verse because it takes us from the basic understanding of the doctrines of justification and sanctification outlined in chapters 3 and 4 and then it starts to show how they relate to us on the basis of our of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. So I want to stop a minute because as I have personally gone through this chapter and studied it and spent this last week cranking through these verses trying to gain a greater understanding of what the Apostle is saying here and understanding it, I've gone back and revised the outline a little bit. Because, and the reason we outline a passage, and, and as a, especially pastors who are exegeting through the Word need to outline a passage because you're, you are organizing the thinking, the flow of thought, that the apostle is expressing here. And I think when we understand the flow, it's easier for us to understand the details. And the reason I say that is because we stopped last week at the end of verse 6, started just on the edge of verse 7. And this is, in fact, a very difficult passage to interpret because Paul gets really excited here. And like many of us, when we get really excited, we start leaving things out. We get uh, our our expressions become rather uh, uh, emotional. We say things. Instead of going into a lot of detail, we may use just one word or a short phrase that represents a whole lot of other material. And that's where Paul is. So it's interesting that when we get here, he just sort of, he has these very quick sentences, he seems to jump from one subject to another, and instead of explaining himself fully, he just sort of uh, rapidly runs from one thing to another. That tells us how important this is, he feels it's important, it's, it's exciting, and we have to stop and try to flesh out what he's saying because he's left out a few things, and so we have to find out what he's left out, and it helps us to understand the general organization. now. If we look at where we've been in our overall study, I want to anchor us back into the general flow of Paul's argument here. We're in the uh, third major section of this epistle, which started back in chapter 3, verse 7. The first part of the epistle is the admonition or warning that these Galatians have rapidly departed. From the Gospel, they are no longer they are now involved in another gospel, a gospel of a different kind, and that was found after the salutation that's found in chapter one verses six through ten that sets the stage for everything that follows because Paul has to correct them and get hold of them and bring them back to reality then from one eleven down through the end of chapter two, I think that goes down to two twenty one Paul are really down to three six Paul develops the whole concept of justification as the basis for our relationship with God and that we have to understand that our whole relationship with God is based on the imputation of christ's righteousness it 's not based on any moral behavior on our part anything good that god sees in us but it's based exclusively on the imputation of christ's righteousness everything we have from from justification at phase one and all the blessings of the spiritual life are all based upon the fact that when god looks at us he looks at us on the basis of that perfect righteousness of christ here's god the father in heaven he is perfect righteousness the righteousness is the standard of his character What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. Justice is the application of the standard of God. So that what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. And we are not born sinners, we are minus R, but in faith alone in Christ alone, among the 40 things that God does for us, he imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when God the Father looks at that perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, He declares us to be just, to be dikaiosune, to be righteous. And that's what it means that we are declared righteous or just. That is the doctrine of justification. But in the spiritual life, God the Father then bestows upon us many different blessings. patience 5 is that we, in contrast to the legalists, we believers who are operating on the basis of our assets in Christ, we who are operating on the power of the Holy Spirit by means of the Holy Spirit in contrast to by means of legal obedience and external righteousness. We're oper- And so we see the contrast and the emphasis that this life is uniquely by means of the Holy Spirit. It is uniquely empowered by God the Holy Spirit on the basis of faith. This is in contrast to the believer who is a legalist, out of fellowship, and has cut himself off completely from grace. For we, by the Spirit, from the source of faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Now, there are three key words in that verse that we have to take a little time to analyze or to reflect on. The first is the Spirit. The second is faith. And the third is hope. Now, the Holy Spirit is a source of power for the spiritual life under the category of the filling of the Holy Spirit. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit as a result of confession of sin. This is the bottom circle. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and that puts us in a place of potential spiritual growth. It only becomes actual spiritual growth when we start applying doctrine. Now, how do we understand applying doctrine? Well, the foundation for all application of doctrine is the second word, which is faith, which represents the faith rest drill. Without faith, the Scripture says, it is impossible to please God. Faith means to trust God, specifically trusting the promises of God and the doctrines extrapolated from Scripture. Hope represents the future. It is from the Greek word elpis, which means confident expectation. It looks forward to something. We talk about the three phases of God's plan for the believer's life. Phase one is justification we are saved from the penalty of sin. Phase two is sanctification we are saved from the power of sin. And phase three is glorification when we are saved from the presence of sin. Now, there's an aspect of righteousness that is related to all of these. For you see, the root word for sanctification is related, is a cognate of hagias, which is the Greek word for holiness and is tantamount to righteousness. At, just, at phase one, justification, we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. So, the issue there is in our positional righteousness that is ours from Jesus Christ. Phase two is the process of spiritual growth. Hebrews 12 talks about the fruit of righteousness, what I call production righteousness, or what others may call experiential righteousness. This is when the tantamount, it's tantamount to divine good. When the believer, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, learns doctrine and applies doctrine. The production of that is divine good. It is the production of the Holy Spirit. It is exemplified in the character of the believer and in its application in doctrine. And we'll come to that at the end of this chapter. That is experiential righteousness or production righteousness. And then phase three is eschatological righteousness. Eschatology means last things that refuse to the future. Eschatological righteousness when we are... at face-to-face with the Lord, absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord, and we no longer have a sin nature. And there we will be truly righteous in all that we are in the presence of God. This is what we are waiting for. This is what we are looking to. The concept of waiting reminds us, too, of the faith rest drill. It reminds us of Isaiah forty thirty one. They that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Waiting looks forward to the ultimate fulfillment of everything that God has promised us, which comes true in phase three when we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. So when we look at these three key words, the Holy Spirit represents the dynamic, the power dynamic for the spiritual life. The faith rest drill represents the second power dynamic, which is the focus on doctrine. It's never faith in faith. It is faith in the promises of Scripture, which is a distillation of doctrine or a particular doctrine itself. And then hope looks forward to the ultimate fulfillment. But there is another key word that is not found in verse 5, but it is found in verse 6. In the second reason that Paul gives, as indicated by his use of garth in translated for, which is an explanation, verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Now, circumcision stands for the application of the law. Circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic Covenant, but they're particularly associating it not only with the Abrahamic Covenant, but with all of the Mosaic Law. So circumcision is sort of, Paul is, as I said, it's staccato here. He's moving very rapidly and he's using these, he uses one word to represent a whole theological spectrum of ideas. So it's, um, uh, circumcision is standing for the entire Mosaic Law or legal obedience, or in a sense, morality. That somehow my external actions, my actions gain the approbation of God. And he says, for, for those who are in fellowship with Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, that is uh, legal behavior, moral good, nor uncircumcision, that's the opposite, that's the lack of ritual, neither one, means anything. Now, there we have to stop because, again, we have a problem in relation to the translation of the text. The Greek word here is the present active indicative of the verb eschuo. I-S-C-H-U-O Now, eschuo means to be able to do something, to accomplish something, to be strong, to be strong physically, to be able to overpower something, to overcome a problem. This word is used in Philippians chapter 4 when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The can do. I have the power. I have the ability, I have the strength to overcome any issue in life through Christ who strengthens me. So, it reminds us that the power to overcome problems. And this is a key word for understanding the interpretation of this section and what Paul is talking about. He is saying that in Christ Jesus, neither ritual nor religion, nor the absence of it, is able to overcome anything. But what? There's the contrast. And we have the word, the strong adversative in the Greek, Allah, A-L-L-A, which is a strong conjunction of contrast. And he is contrasting human viewpoint techniques for achieving spirituality for achieving standing with God and for solving problems with the spiritual dynamic that God has provided for us, which is translated faith, working through love. Now, the verb there is energeo. E-N-E-R-G-E-O which means to work, to produce. And it has to do here with the conjunction of two critical elements together in overcoming any problem, any situation in life. Let's stop and back off from this, because what Paul says here just really brings together so much in Pauline thought that if we don't have a little broader framework, then when we come to these two verses, we're just going to say, scratch our heads and wonder what it means. In fact, one of the things that sort of stimulated me to really dig into this was a friend of mine, we have him on the prayer list, Dan Ingram, who's in the Marine Corps, has been here a couple of times. Dan's taking various courses down at Capitol Seminary, and he took a course on Galatians last fall. And he fired off some questions to me when they got to Galatians 5 because the professor sort of read these verses and said, now what does this mean and what does that mean? And even the professor came to the conclusion we can't really be sure what Paul is saying in these verses. The three key words that break it open for us, the three nouns, are faith, hope, in verse 5, and love, in verse 6. Faith, hope, and love. The verb that breaks it open is escuo, Because iskuo is talking about something that is familiar to all of you who come regularly on Wednesday night. It's talking about overcoming problems. So right away we see that what we're talking about here is the, the essence of the spiritual life. In three words... Paul distills everything he says about the dynamics for the spiritual life. And that is the words faith, hope, and love. So we have to look at some passages where Paul uses these three words together to get a little insight. So hold your place here and turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. Paul says to the Thessalonican believers, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now let's look at that a minute. First of all, we have to define what he means by sober. See, that's, a, I, I, that's just a hangover from the old King James way of translating this verb, napho, in the Greek. Napho has a literal meaning and a figurative meaning, and the literal meaning is, is sobriety, which means the absence of the influence of alcohol. Most scholars doubt that the word is ever used with that meaning. Anywhere in scripture, even in this passage. Now, it's a mention of being drunk in the previous verse, but when Paul talks about what's going on in verse 8, it's not talking about just being, having an absence of alcoholic influence. Since we are of the day, let us be sober. And he even uses the term drunk, not in, ter- in verse 7 metaphorically, not literally. Napho is a figurative extension of the verb, which means to be sober, not to be drunk, but it is used metaphorically to mean to be in control of one's thought processes and thus not to be in danger of irrational thinking. It is possible that 1 Thessalonians 5.8, one writer says, it's possible that 1 Thessalonians 5.8 means lack of drunkenness, But most scholars interpret the use of NAPHO in the New Testament as applying to a broader range of soberness or sobriety, namely restraint and moderation. Listen to this. Restraint and moderation, which avoids emotionalism, rashness, or confusion. It emphasizes thinking. It emphasizes self-control, it emphasizes objectivity. And that comes only from the Word of God. It is the opposite of emotionalism or rashness. So, since we are of the day, let us think clearly and logically. That's what that passage is saying. When you're faced with adversity, you have to think biblically and not react emotionally. Let us think Biblically and logically, having put on, what? The breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And again, hope here means confident, confident expectation. So he uses the metaphor here again of Roman army armor as he does in Ephesians chapter 6. And he's talking, therefore, he must be talking about protection from the onslaught of attack. He is talking about defense. He's talking about the same thing the psalmist wrote when he said that he said, God, you are my fortress, you are my shield, you are my bulwark, you are my defense. What well, we have described as the, the fortress of the soul which is comprised of the ten uh, problem solving devices or stress busters. Remember adversity is the outside pressure of negative circumstances on the soul, and stress is the inside pressure on the soul. Adversity is what circumstances do to you. Stress is what you do to yourself. Adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Stress is dependent upon your exercise of volition, whether or not you're going to apply doctrine. And that application of doctrine, in terms of the entire defense Procedures that God has provided for us in terms of the ten stress busters is represented by these three elements faith, hope, and love. For you see, faith represents your basic stress busters. Faith represents, from the filling of the Holy Spirit, remember the entry point is, this is where the door is, right here. The entry point is 1 John 1 9. We apply that in our lives and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit through doctrinal orientation. Filling of the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation are all based upon the basic operation of faith in the promises and the doctrine of Scripture. Hope is that confident expectation where we shift our attention from present reality to future reality. Remember the Sixth problem-solving device is a personal sense of our eternal destiny. This is hope. This is where our focus shifts from here and now to our future reality. And we begin to realize that every decision we are making today determines who and what we will be for all eternity. Once you begin to think beyond today and start focusing on eternity as the reason you're here, and the reason everything is happening in your life, and the reason you have to make the decisions you're faced with on a daily basis, then you're beginning to realize why you're here, and you can begin to, to focus on eternal priorities. So this is the, the swing stress buster. It's comparable to spiritual adolescence. So we go from spiritual childhood to spiritual adolescence, to spiritual adulthood. Love representing the love triplex, personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. This, then, is spiritual adulthood. Now, when we look at that, we realize its significance, but we have to look at one other passage in order to pull this together that's at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. First, The last verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I don't have time to exegete this in its context, but it says, but now, and that is now in the church age in contrast to what has gone before in the previous verses, which is what was true of the uh, pre-canon, pre-complete canon apostolic era, but now in the church age, continually abides faith, hope, and love. These three. That's the dynamic for the spiritual life. Those three. And the greatest of these is what? The greatest of these is love. Why? Because the immature baby believer can't get here very easily. Because love demands knowledge. Love demands a lot of knowledge of doctrine and a lot of maturity to be able to fulfill and to utilize personal love for God impersonal love for all mankind and occupation with Christ. So when Paul utilizes these words, as he does on many different occasions, he strings them together. They are sort of a theological shorthand for all of the dynamics of the spiritual life. Now that we have that as a frame of reference, let's look at what he says again in Galatians chapter 5 he says for we through the spirit utilization of the filling of the holy spirit as a stress buster problem solving device for we by means of the spirit on the basis of faith the faith rest drill are waiting the sixth problem solving device personal sense of our eternal destiny waiting for the with a confident expectation of righteousness for To those who are in fellowship with Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is able to accomplish anything but faith, the faith rest drill, working together with love. In other words, here he's talking about reaching spiritual maturity. In Paul's thinking, you're not to be a spiritual infant for long. You should move from spiritual infancy through spiritual adolescence fairly rapidly. He expected the, Colossians to have, I mean the uh, Corinthian believers to have done this in just a couple of years. The trouble with many believers is we think that, that it should take us years to achieve spiritual maturity, but Paul says you should get with the program very rapidly, and if you learn doctrine and you're consistent and you make that a priority, you should be operating in spiritual adulthood fairly rapidly, within a year or two but you have to master the basic fundamental spiritual skills. And what are those basic fundamental spiritual skills? These are techniques, just like in anything you do in life, whether it's art, whether it's music, whether it's drama, whether it's carpentry, whether it's accounting, numbers, whatever, you all have learned basic techniques that enable you to do what you do. No matter what that, uh, whether it's a hobby, whether it's a career, whatever it is, You master these techniques, you have to practice them over and over and over again. I hated playing technique exercises when I was studying trombone and piano because it's boring, but they develop the skills that are necessary so that when you have a more complex piece of music in front of you, you can sit down and play it. And that's what these are. These are skills that you have to practice over and over again so that when you're out there in life and you're involved in one situation or you're hit with an adversity or or this situation, you instantly think in terms of doctrine, sobriety. You say, how do I respond here? What are the biblical principles? What are the promises? And you begin to stop and train yourself to think and respond biblically rather than than react emotionally. begins with confession. First of all, you have to make sure you're in fellowship so you can utilize... The first power option, which is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Then you focus on the faith rest drill. What promises are pertinent? What doctrines are pertinent? What doctrinal rationales can I use here? Grace orientation. You have to make sure you're operating on humility, dependence upon God, realizing that He is everything and that we are nothing. Doctrinal orientation. Making sure our thinking and everything is oriented to the plan and purposes of God. Living personal sense of eternal destiny. Living today in light of eternity. Then personal love for God the Father, which motivates us in terms of love for all mankind, unconditional and impersonal love for all mankind, and then occupation with Christ, and then the last is inner happiness. Sharing the happiness of God, the joy of Christ. That's what gives us that stability throughout any situation in life, no matter how harsh it is, no matter how difficult it is. And that's what Paul means by faith working through love. It is utilizing the entire spectrum of spiritual skills to advance in the spiritual life. That is in contrast to the believer who is operating on the basis of works righteousness, trying to gain God's approval through his own moral efforts. See application of doctrine, when we talked about this in James on Wednesday night, it's not don't James says become Doers or appliers of the Word and not merely hearers. What he's saying is when you hit these life situations, you have to apply doctrine. How do you apply doctrine? This is it in a nutshell. This summarizes everything. You apply doctrine through the faith rest drill. You apply doctrine through rebound. You apply doctrine through grace orientation. You apply through personal sense of eternal destiny. That's how you do the Word of God is you... These ten stress busters are a distillation of what the Scripture says about the spiritual life. Paul distills it in three words. Faith, hope, and love. And then in verse 7, Paul really shifts gears and he goes back to a condemnation of the Judaizers. And we'll look at that I think this is where we stopped last week, and I just covered five and six again. But the more I get into these verses, the more I discover there and how they relate to our spiritual life. So next week, we will come back and look at how Paul attacks those who teach a false doctrine, who teach a works righteousness, and why he is so harsh with them. Because, you see, this runs counter to everything our culture tells us. Our culture tells us we should never say harsh things about those who disagree with us. Because we live in America, so everybody has a right, has freedom of speech, and so everybody can believe whatever they want to believe. But that does not mean that everything people can believe has equal value or benefit. And just because you have the freedom to believe wrong things doesn't mean you should should believe wrong things. And it doesn't mean that you should not be condemned for believing wrong things. And Paul is very harsh in what he says here about those who teach a work system of the spiritual life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this privilege we've had today to look at these verses, to go over once again the basic dynamics of the spiritual life that you have provided for us. And that this is ultimately empowered by Your Spirit and Your Word. It is not dependent upon us at all. It is not on how good we are. It's not on uh, works of righteousness which we perform. It's not based on ritual we engage in. It's based exclusively on the power of the Holy Spirit coupled with the power of Your Word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning without uh, confidence of their eternal destiny that the issues of the gospel would be clear to them, that eternity is dependent upon one thing and one thing alone, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that that the righteousness of God might be found in us. He is our only hope. And so, Father, we pray that it would be clear to those who are here without eternal life that all they need to do is trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things we've studied, to think about them through the week, that they may strengthen our souls and our spiritual life in the battles we face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.